CCO time is exactly 7.45. Time for a wine chat with our friend Jack Farrell from Haskell's. Good morning, Jack. Hi there, Denny. How are things? Uh, things are fine. If we can make it stop raining for a while, it would be even oh, better. Isn't that something? Wow. I don't ever in my entire life remember a year that was so rainy. No. I mean, all it does is rain every day. Keep breaking <laughs> records on that uh, topic, too. I yeah. read that we're... We've broken the record for the rainiest year ever. Yeah. It's already, and I mean, you know, we have another two months for sure of more rain. Of any kind of precipitation, for that matter, exactly. yeah. What are we going to be doing today? Today, I am going to answer some readers' questions, or listeners' questions, who send or text me, etc. Uh, I thought somebody texted not too long ago and said, you recommend very highly Malbec with barbecue. And you mentioned the name of the Malbec, but I couldn't write it down. Uh, well, I'll repeat it. It's a Gary uh, Agua, A-G-U-A-R-I-B-A-Y, Aguari Bay Malbec. It's from Mendoza. It's a wonderful uh, Malbec. It's very affordable. And uh, I think it's perhaps one of the best Malbecs. Katina is another great one that comes out of that area. Uh, this is owned by the Rothschild family, and they take good care of it, and the wine is very affordable, and it's pretty good. I was also asked about an everyday Pinot Noir, and I recommended Provinera, P-R-A-V-I-N-E-R-A, Provinera Pinot Noir. It's a Pinot Noir from California. It's extraordinarily affordable, and it really is kind of very good for everyday Pinot Noir drinking. And then someone said, well, what about a rosé from Provence? Mado, M-A-D-O, is another one that I find very, very good. It's a wonderful Provencal uh, rosé, and it comes in this neat bottle that has a glass stopper uh, that you can reuse for vinaigrette or for oil or uh, even as a water flag on the table. The label comes off, and you've got this beautiful glass bottle with a glass stopper. So it comes with a reusable bottle, and it's M-A-D-O Provence. And it's a rosé that I think, again, affordable, delicious, and worth looking for. I was also asked to please repeat uh, the five things that you look for in wine. Well, that's very simple, and I'm glad to do it. The first is color. But when you're thinking about color, make sure you, you don't know uh, red, white, rosé, whatever, there are varieties of colors in all those. What you really look for when you look for color is the wine clear. It's not murky. And uh, it, as long as it's clear, then the color is just fine. Then you look for aroma. And aroma is, does it smell like wine? And if that's okay. The third thing is bouquet. And bouquet gets a little more technical. There, it, If it's Zinfandel, does it smell like a Zinfandel? Or if it's Merlot, does it smell like a Merlot? Etc. Then the uh, uh, for, uh, fourth thing is the taste. How does it taste? And then the last thing is the aftertaste. After you swallow that wine, what kind of a taste does it live in, leave in your mouth? Now, those are the five items, color, aroma, bouquet, taste, and aftertaste. And no matter how many points you assign to grading a wine or whatever, those are the five things that every taster in the entire world looks for when they're evaluating a wine. Color, aroma, bouquet, taste, and aftertaste. And if all those things are kind of coordinated and in sync, 
you've got a very good wine in front of you. And like I say, it doesn't make any difference whether somebody rates it 85 points or 22 points or 9 points. It depends on the point system they're using. On a 100-point basis, uh, it's real easy. You assign different, uh, those five different things get assigned different points. And as you can see, two of the five have to do with the olfactory system, the smelling it. And uh, so that's very important because your tongue can only distinguish sweet, sour, uh, bitter, and salt. And that's why uh, you need the, that airspace at the top of a glass to evaluate a wine because it's so important. The nose can distinguish, I don't know, 50,000, 60,000 different things, while your tongue can only distinguish those four I mentioned. Uh, here's another good question. Why are some wines called regional wines and named by their region and other wines by grape varietal? Well, for example, Burgundy wines. Uh, they're all Burgundy or the name of the village or something like that. Uh, it's very seldom do they label it. There's just a movement now starting to label some of those wines Pinot Noir that wasn't permitted under French law for a long time. Mostly, you could say, the old world wines are named regionally. New World wines are used by varietals. And, and that's a, there's an interesting story connected with that. It was actually the wine merchant Frank Sunmacher and Alexis Lachine who were responsible for varietal labeling. It wasn't really done. And uh, wines from California were called Chablis and Burgundy and things like that. And no one ever called wine Cabernet Sauvignon or Pinot Noir or Pinot Chardonnay. They all uh, had these uh, regional names that they had taken from Europe, and they said, uh, this is Sunmacher and Lachine, said you really have to have your own nomenclature. Start using the varietal names, and they did, and the rest is history. Today, varietals are grown all over the world, particularly in the New World, in Chile and New Zealand and uh, Australia, Argentina, etc. Use the uh, varietal names. Whereas in uh, Europe, it's uh, Chianti and Rioja and Burgundy and Chablis and Champagne. So uh, that's basically why some wines are regional and others are varietal. And incidentally, some of those uh, regional names are protected by the EU, the European Common Market. Uh, you can't use the word Champagne. Uh, in another country. You can't use the word Chianti in another country. They do it, of course, but they're breaking international law when they do do that, and some countries just never recognize those their right to those names, but they do have the right to those names. Italy, for example, has the right uh, to Chianti, but some places they don't, but generally it's a good rule of thumb. What's the best way to learn about wines? Well, I'll tell you pure and simple. Get a, Buy a corkscrew and pull corks. That is the best and only way you're ever going to learn about wine. Reading books and all that is very interesting, and it helps. They're great resources. Uh, you take a class uh, as much as you can. Buy, get periodical magazines, all that. But there's no substitute for putting your nose in a glass and tasting and evaluating that wine. That's the way to learn about wines. Open a bottle or two and taste them. And believe me, the only one that in matters of taste is yourself. If you don't like something and everybody else thinks it's uh, the last word, 
that's perfectly all right. And no one has the only one you're going to please is yourself, and that's as it should be. And so, in my opinion, that's the best way to learn about wines. Uh, a wrote a reader, a listener wrote, I like my red wines chilled. Is that all right? Of course it's all right. However you like your wine. I find it abhorrent people put ice in wine, but on a hot day and the wine isn't cold enough, go right ahead. If you're the one that's drinking it and enjoying it, it really uh, doesn't make a lot of difference. Um, And frankly, if you've taken a bottle of wine and you have a little wine rack on top of your refrigerator and it's a bottle of red wine, chances are that wine's been heated by the heat of the refrigerator and should be chilled down anyway. I always think wines, if they have our at room temperature, in other words, 70-some degrees, you ought to put them in the refrigerator for about 10 minutes to bring them down to a drinkable temperature. When they say room temperature in Europe, they generally meant about 60 degrees because that was the temperature of the rooms. Uh, you know, they didn't have the luxury we did of central heat, all that uniform temperatures throughout the house. So chilling a red wine, there's nothing wrong with it. I like buttery Chardonnays. What makes a wine buttery? Well, the buttery is sensation, is the taste you get from wine. It's a creamy taste in your mouth that's kind of similar to butter. But more often than not, it's associated with vanilla and baking flavors, uh, like walking into a house where they're baking bread. Buttery uh, tastes also come from diactyl. That's a byproduct of malolactic fermentation. And anyhow, that buttery taste generally is induced by association with some oak. And uh, buttery wines are delightful. Uh, they're easy on the, the uh, palate. And uh, you, that's what makes a wine buttery. Someone asked me, what are legs? Well, legs really aren't very important. A leg is when you swirl the wine around and you notice the glycol going down the side of your wine glass, and those are called legs. They indicate alcohol percentage of the wine. And uh, legs that run down that are thin and move quickly, the wine has low alcohol. If the legs are slow, the wine has a higher alcohol content. You can see that immediately if you do that with port. Port is very high in alcohol. It's over 18%, and you'll notice the legs move very, very slowly. How come red wine makes my mouth pucker and white wine doesn't? Well, that's the tannins in it. Generally, for example, if you've had a tea bag or a cup of tea and you feel that puckery taste in your mouth after you swallow a, a sip of black tea, that's all tannin. And the tannin is a compound that comes in grapes And it comes from the skins, the stems, and the seeds. And generally, red wines spend more time with the skins, the stems, and the seeds. So they have a tannic presence that you won't find in most white wines. Then I have my last and favorite question is, what's the difference between Sauvignon Blanc and Sancerre? Well, I'll tell you what. Sancerre is a Sauvignon Blanc that's gone to college. It's the most sophisticated uh, Sauvignon Blanc in the world. It comes from an area in the Loire Valley in France, and Sancerre is one of my favorite aperitif wines. If you offer it to people, I guarantee you, you offer them two or three different aperitifs, they're going to go back to that Sancerre. It's the most unusual form, in my opinion, of Sauvignon Blanc, and the most desirable. If you like Sauvignon Blanc, 
you're going to love uh, Sancerre. And lastly, what's my favorite wine? Well, the one in my glass at the moment. Uh, plus, I'm a kind of a Burgundian. I like both the reds and whites from Burgundy in France. I think the white wine from Burgundy is the greatest expression of Chardonnay in the world, and the red wines that you get from Burgundy are the greatest expression of Pinot Noir in the world. Not all of them understand, but many people, wine-knowledgeable people, I'm sure would agree with me that a Le Montrachet is a very hard Chardonnay to beat, and Latache from DRC would be a very, very hard Pinot Noir to beat. Uh, and, you know, there's also lots of these new uh, uh, blended wines that you can enjoy at all times. Very, very nice. And lastly, someone said to me, are rosé wines just for summer? Absolutely not. A rosé wine makes a great aperitif. A rosé wine would be an excellent dish to have, for instance, or wine to have with your Thanksgiving dinner. It oh, goes yeah. with everything. It really does. Well, some great ideas, Jack. Some great well, information. Great questions. See, you'd think I felt like I was a college professor. <laughs> I read these. I can't get over how intelligent our listeners are. We have very smart listeners, for we sure. Do indeed. And That's they always, great. if they need any particular thing to match up with any food they're serving, they always go to Haskell's. Indeed. Haskell's folks can't make the meal, but make the dinner perfectly matched with the wine. And you know what? They'll help you pick a wine that will not break the bank. They'll pick an affordable wine that you'll be very, very happy with. There's a Haskell's near you where you can save big dollars on wine. Haskell's in Bloomington. Haskell's in Excelsior right downtown. There's a Haskell in Fairbowl right off of 35. Our super seller up in Maple Grove is not to be missed. It's worth stopping up there to see that store. Minneapolis, we have free parking on both Saturday and Sunday. Minnetonka at Ridgedale, Plymouth, St. Paul's Highland Village, Stillwater, White Bear Lake, and Woodbury, too. And if you can't come into Haskell's, go to Haskell's.com. And don't forget, we do deliver. Very good, Jack. Well, let's uh, talk again next week. We hope you have time for that. Denny, I'm going to look forward to it. Thanks very much. Jack Farrell from Haskell's, that family-run business.